1: Hey, what's up, everybody? I have exciting news to share with you. I'm thrilled to announce that as a network, we are now distributing The Plug podcast with Justin J. The Plug is one of my favorite interview podcasts. Justin is a New York-based photographer. You actually may remember him from episodes number 272 and episode number 78 of Surf Splendor. Uh, man episode 78 we recorded back in 2015 so justin has been with us uh for a very long time in a lot of different forms actually but um you may actually own his book we discussed the book in 272 it's called hi1k documenting his 10 winners on the north shore he was the personal photographer for sean puffy combs traveling the world with him for years And Justin has just led a very interesting life. You can learn more about it in those episodes. But anyway, the plug unpacks the thousands of words that those photographs paint directly with the subjects themselves. And what's cool about it is that Justin has access to A-listers from everywhere, from the surf world, skate world, fashion, music, celebrity, all of it. So his past episodes include interviews with Tony Hawk, Herbie Fletcher, Paul Rodriguez, Cassio Mador. Evan Mock, Ireland Baldwin, and this week he just published an interview with Pat O'Connell. A year ago, in November, he also interviewed the now recently departed surf photography icon Art Brewer. So considering Art's recent passing, I wanted to share that episode here on Surf Splendor as a way to introduce you to The Plug podcast, Justin's work, and our new distribution of the show. So you can find that new Pat O'Connell episode over on The Plug, the entire archive is there as well. Just search The Plug with Justin J on whatever app you're listening to this show in. And then, of course, you can find it all on surfsplendorpodcast.com as well. We also distribute six other shows there. Surf Splendor, Spit with Scott Bass, The Grit with Chess Smith, Hardcore Surf History, Surf Stories by the Florida Surf Film Festival, The Boardroom Show, and then Donald Brink has a show called Swell with My Soul. Everything is free. Feel free to dive deep. Thank you for listening. And without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy The Plug with Justin J, featuring guest Art Brewer.
0: I shot it. I knew there were some good images, but then I put it away and didn't break it back out for 25 years. You give it time, it's going to change. It's going to become more important because digital is the future of lost images.
2: I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The plug. We've become a society accustomed to immediate gratification. The technology that's brought us 30-minute home delivery, our favorite TV shows on demand, and Instagram has also brought us the ability to instantly and inexpensively take unlimited photos from the phone in our pocket. But what's the hidden cost? It seems counterintuitive, but sometimes waiting longer for something actually adds value to it. If hard work and perseverance at something tend to promote a sense of accomplishment and pride, then perhaps there's also a correlation between the effortlessness of something and its perceived disposability. Today's guest is a photographer that hails from an era when pictures were expensive to take, time-consuming to print, and they had a sense of permanence. Shooting a magazine cover then earned you a place in the public's consciousness for at least 30 days— but sometimes they actually had the ability to become part of the permanent visual landscape. His archive of surf imagery from the 70s, 80s, and 90s contains countless iconic images that actually visually define the sport. They become part of the fabric of surf history. So how do you reconcile an entire career's worth of dedication and passion invested into the art form of photography in a landscape where print media is virtually extinct and every image seems to be just a single finger swipe away from irrelevancy? We'll find out as we sit down for a conversation with a seasoned veteran of studio portraiture, water photography, and action sports. Today, surfer, teacher, and photography triple threat, Mr. Art Brewer. Art Brewer, thank you for sitting down, man. It's a pleasure to finally get to meet you.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Um, So, you know, just for a little backstory, obviously I have been very familiar with your work for quite some time, but for the listener's sake, uh, the way you and I first came into contact and met is I put out a photography book in 2020 called HI1K, and it was a chronicle of 10 seasons that I spent on the North shore documenting surf culture. And I'd reached out to you and you were gracious enough to agree to a signed book trade. So you sent me a copy of your book, masters of surf photography. I just wanted to say thank you. It is an absolutely beautiful documentation of several decades of surf photography. And so congratulations and, and thank you. I really, I really appreciate that.
0: (laughs) I I wish the printing looked as nice as uh, the prints in your book.
2: Oh, well, thank you. Well, I, I uh, let's get the plug right out of the way at the top of the show. So your book, Art Brewer, Masters of Surf Photography can be purchased at surfersjournal.com. My book HI1K can also be purchased at surfersjournal.com or at uh, HI1K.com. So, you know, after having just gone through the process myself um, and I know, you know, how much effort it takes, I'm curious, what were some of the major obstacles? What, were, what was one of the biggest challenges that you had to overcome to, to make this project happen?
0: Digging out the archives, you know, too many years of photos.
2: Um, most of your photos were, were shot on film, I, I would imagine.
0: Yes. In that book, uh, all of them. There were no digital images. Wow.
2: And I'm sure that presents uh, its own set of, of challenges as well in terms of, you know, because for me, I had 10 years worth of photos to go through, you know, although I'd kind of been editing along the way, it's still, you know, you got to at some point kill some of your children. <laughs> you know, you can't include right. everything. Um, but once I did that edit, everything was essentially ready to go, at least in terms of starting design. But I mean, it must have been a massive undertaking to, to to get all those scans done and to make everything look how how you wanted it to.
0: Yeah. The biggest problem was the s- scanning. And then that was done in Singapore and then g- going on and uh, getting the stuff printed in Hong Kong was a whole fiasco. It's like, it spent weeks there, you know?
2: Wow. Oh, so you were, you were on set, you were on, you were on. Yeah, press. I
0: wanted to see what they, they were doing. And wow. I went to Singapore on the way into Indonesia and then looked at what they were doing with the scans and wasn't real satisfied with a lot of stuff. So then I ended up going to Indonesia, hanging out for three weeks, and then flew back into Hong Kong and sat there for a week to watch it print.
2: (laughs) Were you able to, to, you know, squeeze in some some work or or recreation or surf, or was it you're pretty much just... Did, on on press trying to get this project done.
0: Um I did two back-to-back um, trips through the mountains and up to, you know, the Tallow's area.
2: Okay, so you're able to, to squeeze in some fun in between.
0: Oh yeah, it was work. Got to make money while you're working.
2: <laughs> so while you're spending money. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um so you know, aside from from the technical challenges of of, you know, color correction and scanning, you know, for for me personally, sometimes when I'm looking through my archive It can be kind of an emotional experience, especially when I'm looking at pictures of people with a lot of time has passed since I shot them. Cause I find that sometimes, you know, with that passage of time, the meaning of that photo takes on something entirely different than the reason that I took it in the first place. Like, is there a couple images that stand out to you in your book that were really transformative? You know, that they really meant something markedly different when you printed the book than when you took them?
0: Um, I don't know. Most of them had aged pretty well. I always looked at photographs as you, you get the film back and you look through it and you go, oh, that's good. That's good. And you'd miss some of the subtleties of the other images. And then when you go back, not right away, but years later, it's like all of a sudden they became ripe is not the, the word for it, but it's something that they've aged properly. You know, and you look at it differently because you've had more time to be away from it. That's the one thing with digital that really bugs me. I go shoot it and look at it and I'm never satisfied with it. Yeah. But then if you shoot it, don't look at it. Let it sit. It comes out in a whole different way because it has a different perspective because you've had the time to think.
2: When you were editing for the book, did you... Did you go through just selects or did you really go back to the drawing board and, and, and look at outtakes and, and the frames before and after some of your favorite images?
0: To be honest, I had an assistant that work with me and he did the basic pull and he'd worked for me about 12 years and he had a really good viewpoint of what I'd shot. And from there I went and I picked out the ones I liked out of those groups And then, you know, then I went and talked with Pesman and Pesman, we, you know, printed some out and laid them up and started moving stuff around on the floor.
2: The reason I ask is, I mean, like with me personally, you know, sometimes the meaning and the gravity of what the pictures become are sometimes outside of your intent of what I took it for. Like, for instance, I have a picture in the book of of Sion Maloski, and he's looking at the back of. Uh, Aaron Checkwood, who was the photo editor mm-hmm. at, at Transworld Surf, looking at the back of Aaron's camera at a picture that he just took. And, you know, graphically, it's not the most amazing photo. I mean, I don't w- I want to say it's a throwaway, but, you know, with the passage of time, Sion, you know, he, he died right. 60 days after that photo was taken. And the image that he was looking at on the back of that camera ended up being the cover of Transworld. So, I mean, it kind of had this whole other life beyond what I originally took it for. And that's what, you know, I was wondering, are there any images of people that passed away or that kind of personal narratives of the individual subject has changed since you took it? That kind of made it take on a whole new life.
0: Um, You know, just off the top of my head, it's funny, the bunker stuff, you know, I shot it. I knew there were some good images, but then I put it away and didn't break it back out for 25 years Wow. I mean little pieces.
2: So for the backstory for the listeners, because I think this is this is something I really want to get into because this is such an amazing book that you put together. Um, Bunker Spreckles, you should definitely look him up if you're not familiar, but the gist of it, he was a surfer. Um, but he was heir to the Spreckles sugar fortune. And his his stepfather was Clark Gable. And when he came of age, he inherited a lot of money. And he basically took that money and spent it on surfing and for coats and cars and drugs and guns and traveling, and then eventually passed away in his late twenties. Um, so it was a very compelling figure, and you spent a lot of time traveling with him—South Africa and 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 all over the world.
0: Three months, wow! <laughs> you know, and uh, we definitely had our battles on that trip, and that everybody—it's really strange because everybody. Buddy thinks that he inherited millions of dollars but his father on the Speckle side had basically squandered all the money. I think when he turned 21 he got a lump sum and it wasn't really that much. It wasn't like millions of dollars like everybody says.
2: I mean, you don't have to say a number but are you aware of the actual number or was it just kind of myth?
0: No, I never have been. Yeah. Yeah. And when I went with him on that trip, I, his mother talked to me and told me to be careful, you know. And so we had a contract drawn up. Basically, it said that if I quit, I had to pay my own way back. And if he fired me, I went back carte blanche, you know, because everything was first class. So it was very, you know, strained. I mean, he did try to shoot me <laughs> at one point in Jeffries Bay and uh, Tony den Heuvel tackled me to the ground just before the shot went off. And, you know, it was right there at face surfboards. Thank God I had faith.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, being, being so close to the epicenter of this, you know, kind of chaotic character, did you ever have a conflict between your role as, you know, journalist or photographer and your role as, I mean, dare I say friend? I mean, was there any conflict in terms of a dangerous situation? Did you ever have to kind of choose to intervene or not, you know, as opposed to, to capturing it on film?
0: Uh, there are a couple times, you know, um, I wasn't with him at the, it was a banquet or something in Durban when he pulled the knife on the guy. And it was an argument over shaping and some guy called him out and he literally jumped up and over the guy and straddled him and it pulled his buck knife out at the same time and had it up to his throat. And he goes, let's bring your friends out. Let's go talk about it. And he put the knife away. And, yeah. you know, then after that, I ended up getting hassled because we we're, I was a little taller than him, but we we're about the same size. And blonde sort of looked similar. You know, he had a goatee, which he shaved. And there were pictures of him in the newspapers. And, you know, they had quotes from him. And they wanted to know why he was carrying a knife. And he told them that he was just a good Boy Scout. (laughs) And the the Boy Scouts of South Africa came back and told the press that we don't carry knives. (laughs) But after that, it was like people would try to hassle, you know, me thinking I was Bunker except the people that knew me.
2: So you would actually, it wasn't just collateral damage from, you know, being his his friend or, or collaborator. You, you were actually mistaken for him?
0: Yes. Interesting. Yeah, and it was really strange because that was during a period of time where like Reno Abalero and Eddie Icao, we were all there in Durban, but they are Hawaiians, so they were like blacks or colors. And they wouldn't let them come into our hotel where we stayed, weren't invited to certain events and things like that. It was just really sort of a screwy deal. Wow.
2: Fascinating times to have, to have been there. I mean, there's a kind of some chaotic stuff going on in South Africa right now too, but I, I can only imagine what it must've been like in the you know, mid seventies.
0: Yeah. My son-in-law is from South Africa and, you know, he just became a U.S. citizen, but uh, he'd been here for 10 years now.
2: So, you know, with respect to bunker, I I feel like sometimes public figures, you know, when they pass away, it's, it's completely shocking and it's unsettling and and surprising. And then other times when people pass away, it's almost, it's almost like on brand with the way they live their life and their public image. Right. Did you, did you at the time have a sense that his, his way of living was just unsustainable? Like, I, I mean, did you, did you have a sense that there was really like this wasn't going to go on forever? Or were you surprised at what happened to him?
0: I felt that uh, basically he wasn't going to hang around. I think it had something to do with the money and it was going to run out. I really feel that there was a deal going on where he's going to be no more money for him from his inheritance. I mean, you, you
2: got the sense that 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 money and, And I guess the the lifestyle and and image that that afforded was so important to him that when that ran out or if that ran out, that it just, he wouldn't really have the ability to go on after that.
0: Basically, plus some of the characters that sort of set in the wings at different times. It's when we came back from that trip, uh, first thing we did is go up to Beverly Hills Hotel and there was this full entourage that showed up. There's this American girl with this fake French accent. And there was a crew of guys that I knew from Hawaii that were on the dark side. And basically, they showed up with a pound of heroin. And I, I just went, fuck this.
2: The writing's on the wall at that point.
0: Earlier in the trip, we went after he tried to shoot me.
2: I <laughs> let me get back up for one second was that was that a, a a drug or alcohol fueled mistake or was that something intentional
0: it was the day after his birthday and i think it was alcohol ritalin and god knows what else but he invited the whole town to his birthday and it was at the beach hotel right there at the very tip of Jeffrey's Bay. And it was closed, but we got kicked out of the other hotel because he broke a sink trying to make a chillum out of a Coke bottle. (laughs) So we ended up at the Beach Hotel, and he paid them to open up. And we were the only people staying there. But he invited the whole town to his birthday, and it was like a mad scene. And he got a little violent and pushy with Ellie, and pushed her into a plate glass window and the window broke. And, you know, then she ended up going to her room and then escaping out of her room. And one of the farmers from outside of town took over and took her away. And so he went on this mad hunt all night long looking for her. And he ran, he destroyed two cars, ran uh, this guy from uh, Santa Barbara's VW van off the road. And it was, it was crazy.
2: (laughs) How how did people react to him at the time? I and mean, was he was was he a beloved character, or was he a kind of uh, difficult person to to be around?
0: He was actually very smart, very positive. But as once a crowd or a group got together, it was like he was the entertainer or something. And if it took causing chaos, he would do that. So be it. Yeah. I mean, he was, he could be your best friend, but then he could be your worst enemy.
2: Yeah. Let me ask you this. You, you spent a lot of time shooting with Andy Irons too. Like, are there, are there any parallels between the two in terms of personal demons or recklessness or raw talent? I mean, is there, is there a through line there at all?
0: Andy was pure, you know, pure talent. Yeah. Pure talent. But, you know, he had some issues and... I just happened to get in the middle of one of them and thank God that Nathan Fletcher and Casey Curtis and myself were there and Rufo and some of the other guys. And, you know, I just came back from dinner and all shit, you know, just broke loose. It was nuts.
2: It could have, it could ended very differently.
0: Oh yeah. Well, it, in the end it did, which is sad. Yeah. You know, you had your enablers in the end.
2: So for the the sake of listeners who don't know, um, Andy Irons eventually did pass away, but um, he technically died on the trip that you're talking about as well, correct? Wow.
0: Yeah. I mean, we spent night outside the hospital on the balcony because they had no waiting room where we were. And it was the only Christian hospital that had oxygen and, and you know, refibs and all that. And I was lucky that I had a friend there that put us in the right direction.
2: Um, well, let's switch gears for a second and lighten it up. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. sorry. <laughs> no, wow. it's it's That's what happens in 50 years of surfing.
2: So, I mean, I, I've crossed paths with a lot of photographers over the course of my career, and we've had a couple of them on the show. And I found that the ones that I'm always drawn to and compelled to are the ones who, they always seem to have this ability to be in the right place at the right time. And we had Glennie Friedman on, for instance, and he seemed uniquely positioned to be able to document the nascent skate culture in California and punk rock culture and even hip hop culture eventually. But if you dig a little deeper, you realize that it's actually not an accident at all. I mean, it takes a lot of passion. It takes a lot of vision and talent, but it also takes a lot of personality skills to be able to insert yourself into these social scenes and, and, and be committed to it. And, you know, with respect to surfing, there's a lot of very talented water and action photographers. There's a lot of very talented photographers who capture the atmospherics and the culture of surfing. There's a small group of of photographers who are very talented at traditional studio portraiture. But there's very, very few photographers who have been able to do all of those things as well as you have. And my question is, you know, for a sport like surfing that's so well-documented, why do you think so few photographers have been able to span genres as effectively as you have?
0: Um, I think it. they look at it in one perspective, they don't look at it in 3D, you know, they don't look at the overall thing. It's like I looked at so much great surfing over the years and photographed it. And then everybody else wants to photograph it. And then you end up with 20 guys on the beach. Now it's probably 50 or 100. Well, because the magazines, too. And what you show people. I mean, everybody can look at a surf photo. How about showing these people in a different environment or their environment or where they like to be? Put them in a different place show them where they really are. And what it does is sort of breaks down barriers and it, it makes it honest is really what I feel. And I kept telling the magazine, I go, we well, got to get away from just all the porn.
2: <laughs> it's surf porn. You yeah. Know?
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's all blue and everything. So how about show something about these people? Share something.
2: I mean, I found a great, a great quote from, from your book where you're referring to yourself. You said, I'm not just a quote-unquote surf photographer. I know how to manipulate light and create energies. Um, the manipulating light—that's you know—that's the technical skill. But I think yeah. the creating energies was a really interesting way to put it because I think a lot of times the the personal relationship that that's conveyed in a photograph is it's not front and center in a lot of photographs, especially yeah. you know with with respect to you know, to the surf porn that you talk about. Yeah, and then that was kind of my my mission statement when I set out to do my project on the North shore is like, I, I don't shoot any water and there's so many people that do that so well. Yeah. I just didn't feel that I could add anything to the genre, but you know, what I could do is um, you know, my talent of, of capturing moments and, and, and personalities and, and my skill dealing with people and being able to right. create narratives. And, you know, I think in many ways, you don't see a lot of that anymore in the North shore. It's like, it's all, it's, it's surf porn.
0: What's amazing is I love your book because it shows a whole different side. I couldn't do that when contest surfing really wasn't happening. Not that I'm a fan of contests, but it just, it was really one-sided. And to get in to know these people, you know, like Barry Nayapuni and I mean, it took a lot of just being there to all of a sudden them to invite me in. And, you know, the contest thing, I'm far from a fan, but I loved what you did because you took people inside, you know, and if you can't have that with a person, you you have no perspective.
2: Yeah. And it was a fine line for, for us putting the book together because I wanted it to feel accessible to people who knew nothing about the sport. And I think that's Largely, the problem with a lot of surf photography now is that like unless you truly understand what it means to get barreled at pipe and how dangerous and difficult that is, you know, et cetera, right. et cetera, it doesn't translate well to the to the uninitiated. And I really wanted to make it accessible and, and document the culture. But at the same time, I wanted it to, you know, to speak to to the actual culture as well. So it was like this kind of fine line that we had to walk. And, you know, hopefully we we're able to pull that off.
0: No, you did it. You know, you should be proud of it.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you. We were trying to figure out what to put on the back cover of the book. And Mm -hmm. I was having a real difficult time picking an image. And eventually I came across this quote that Jamie Brissick actually loaned me from an interview that he did with uh, Mark Cunningham. And it just sums it up so wonderfully. And this is what we ended up running with and says, you know, everyone thinks of the North Shore as surf, 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 but there's a whole wonderful community that sends their kids across the street to Sunset Elementary School and they're Births and deaths and marriages and divorces, and I felt that just (laughs) so beautifully summed up what I was trying to convey about my photos. You know,
0: it's honest. You
2: know, I want to talk a little bit more about the North Shore. I uh, I was watching the movie Casino last week, and great movie, it's a terrific movie. At the end of the movie, there's a scene where Robert De Niro is kind of in the latter part of his life, and he's reflecting on what Las Vegas used to be, what it was. And all the pioneering casinos have been demolished and replaced with corporate theme hotels. And there's this great line where he says, you know, the dealers used to know your name. They knew what you drank. They knew what you played today. A whale shows up with $4 million in a suitcase and some 25 year old hotel school kid is going to want a social security number. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great line. Do you see, do you see any metaphorical parallels between that and, the state of the North shore now, because, you know, surf culture is so steeped in this lore of the North shore being this place of relative lawlessness and it was remote and it was rugged and it was dangerous and it was magical. And, you know, for so many reasons from rising real estate costs to social media, to the influx of of corporate money, it seems like that, that characterization is really not applicable anymore. I mean, what's your current relationship with the North Shore? How often do you get over there?
0: Um, It's been probably five, six years. You know, I'll go to Kauai or the big island, but North Shore, if I don't have a reason to be there, I don't go there. I mean, I have friends there. And if I go through Honolulu, I'll go visit a couple people because I have lots of friends there, but you just never know if they're there or what's going on. It seems like it's being robbed a little bit of its mana in Hawaii, you know.
2: Speak speak to me. I mean, I agree, but speak to me on why.
0: Just it's like California a lot. It's becoming the North Shore is becoming like California. And in California's lost it a long time ago. You know, I live here. I would move in a second if I knew where I'd go. It would either be Big Island or move down to Baja California, you know, to get away from the nonsense. You know, I look at everything that's going on in this this country, and then I look what's going on in Hawaii. I mean, Hawaii, the local government there is just nuts.
2: The irony is that, you know, the one thing that originally attracted everyone to the North Shore is probably one of the few things that has actually gone unchanged. I mean the waves themselves. I mean you have so many waves all over the world that have been destroyed by development or a jetty or just the change of a landscape and yeah. you know the the lineups have obviously the tone of the lineup has obviously changed a lot on the north shore but I mean the waves themselves are they basically still how they were in the early 70s?
0: Basically, yes. I mean they're there and it, you know, every season there's are certain days of the year that gets amazing. And you asked me about a photo earlier. There's a photo of uh, David Garner, Jock Sutherland, and John Boozer walking down the beach, coming from Pipeline, going towards Pupakea. And that was about 10 o'clock in the morning. Lopez had been out, and Jock and them, and Mike Turquifin. And, and that was the only guys out there on that October morning. And it was a solid eight to ten. And that's what it was. You had to look for people to go surfing with you, you know? <laughs> and then you see Jose Angel come out and he'd be he'd be out there at sunrise before anybody's out there, before he had to go teach. And he was just amazing. Nobody there. You know, now you, good luck. <laughs> Did you ever have any close
2: encounters on the North Shore, either uh, with Mother Nature or locals?
0: No, never had a problem with locals. As always, I've been blessed. You know, I was good friends with the Surrattes, Fast Eddie, you know, Barry, you know, and all the Howleys too. You know, I just sort of slid through, you know. I did almost drown down at Jocko's one time. I was out with Hornbaker and Aaron Chang, and uh, we went to paddle in this one wave. Didn't get in, turned around, and there was a closeout set all the way across to Chuns, and I just got pinned, full tombstone.
2: Wow. Um, so you know, looking back, looking back through your book, one of the things that that stuck out to me the most, besides just all these amazing photographs, is that you know the. The context that so many of those photos were were taken in is such a different, the power and the place that photography held in public consciousness and in media is so different than it is today. You know, if you, if you got a cover of Surfer Magazine in the eighties, you knew that it would be relevant, not just for the 30 days that it was on the stands, but it would probably become part of this part of the fabric of the visual landscape of the sport. You know, it was going to be a lasting, iconic moment. And, you know, photography just doesn't have that position anymore. It seems like, you know, it's like, it seems that no matter how good the photograph is, it's always just one finger swipe away from becoming completely irrelevant, you know? And so for somebody who's invested so much passion and so much time and such a large part of their life in photography, does that make you nostalgic? Does it make you Bitter? I mean, what, what's your assessment of the current state of photography as, as an art form or as a career?
0: It's become homogenized. It's become cheapened. Um, people always feel that they can get something cheaper, but they can't get what you've already done. You know, and then it's like even digital, you give it time, it's going to change. It's going to become more important because, you know, digital is the future of lost images. You better have a Farad- Faraday cage.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can have a shoebox full of, of negatives that catch on fire, but you know, they still have to physically have something happen to them. But right. um, I've been pretty fortunate because I'm 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 pretty regimented in you know my backing up. But uh, yeah, it's so easy to just completely have something not exist anymore.
0: Yeah, that's what we do. You know, I scan all my film as much as I can.
2: Do you, do you have any marquee images that really stand out over the course of your career that kind of changed your perspective? Or is there a subject that a sitting with a subject that really stands out as just like a highlight, career highlight?
0: I think it's all been a highlight, <laughs> you know? It's like hard to pick one. It's like everybody asked me, who's my favorite surfer or who, you know, the favorite I've ever worked with. They're all so great. You know, I mean, some, some are chase and then some are easy. And, you know, if I were to pick one person, one of the funniest guys, and I love him to death is Tom Carroll. You know, I I've known him for a long time and he's always been consistent, you know, in his personality, the way he handles things, and he's wise, you know, just like his brother, Nick.
2: What about, let me make it a little easier. Is there one person that is maybe your least favorite or a story that stood out, like one of the most difficult sittings that you ever did?
0: Probably Elkerton, just off the top of my head.
2: Yeah. Why was he so difficult?
0: Um, I needed to do a portrait of him and we were supposed to meet up and it went on for days and days. And so finally, one day I just went down and sat on the beach and cause I knew he was down there. He got tipped off by Cunningham and I just waited for him and I cornered him. And, you know, I sort of told him, I said, if we can get this done, you know, I was going to get nasty with him. And he goes, okay, let's get this done. So.
2: I mean, did you find, you know, working, working at Surfer Magazine, I mean, obviously back then the, the mantle of did the magazine itself had so much, uh, you know, Authority, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, was it easy having them, kind of backing you in terms of, I need this for Surfer Magazine instead of I need this for me. I mean, did that did that affect things or do uh, laxidysical surfers not care about that?
0: I don't think they care about it, or you know, but not at that point. I mean, some of them did, you know, more of the Australians, you know, Rabbit and all those guys. They were always reaching out, you know, being forward, but surfing magazine was really going hard on trying to get those guys in cornering them on having them on their side. And it came a lot with the whole Quicksilver in the beginning because Quicksilver went with uh, surfing big time with advertising and stuff like that. But other than that, it was like pretty easy. If someone happened to come by the studio or, you know, the magazine If I saw a moment and they had a little time, I'd drag them in the studio and just get a couple of snapshots, you know, and build off of that.
2: Um, You know, so if we were, you know, to to break down your work into the categories that we talked about, you know, whether it's, you know, action, kind of lifestyle, atmospherics, or traditional studio portraiture, which one do you gravitate towards at this point in your life? Is one closest to your heart?
0: I like it all. You know, it's hard to pick. I mean, you take the when you see an opportunity, you take it. Otherwise, you know, you just go with the flow.
2: It just seems like, I mean, for me personally, it becomes more difficult as I get older to take the the time and, and to have the relevance to be able to be a part of a subculture or any right. culture to invest the time to be able to like, Shoot it the way that I want to, you know. And I'm like, the last year was the first year I didn't go to the North Shore in about 12 years because of COVID, but the book had already been completed at that point. And, you know, looking into the future, I'm not sure how many more seasons I'll go over there. I kind of put a little postscript on that whole project. And that's a time in my life, you know. Do you, do you feel similar about certain things?
0: Um, yeah, because things change. And unless you have a idea that you want to really tackle, it's hard to engage is the way I look. It's like, I wouldn't go to the North shore to go shoot photos. I would go there to visit friends. And then if something came along, then I might shoot it. But if I would really want to go shoot photos, like surfing and that type of thing, you put a trip together. And I was always behind that because on the North shore, you're shooting everything everybody else is unless you're doing something like you did. And my whole philosophy when I was a photo editor is to not compete with the guys that we had on retainer and let them blossom and do the work. And I'm getting paid as an editor. So I go to the North Shore and I didn't want to do what they were doing because then I'm taking rice out of their rice bowl. You know, that was the whole feeling. Yeah.
2: I mean, I, I, kind of felt the same way. I mean, A I didn't really have the access or the ability to be able to be the guy in the water shooting barrels at pipe, but that wasn't my intent in the first place. And, you know, it was always funny. People would ask me like, Oh, what, what equipment did you use? Or what'd you shoot with? And I was like, that that's not the secret sauce, you know, oh, the perfect. secret sauce for for that project is my skills, my ability to be able to, you know, be this kind of strange, you know, outsider from New York city that comes from like a hip hop music photography background, and go to the North shore and have people trust me and allow me into their world, you know, and that, that took a lot of time and a lot of trust. And I think that's why, you know, hopefully that shows in the pictures.
0: Yeah. Cameras don't take pictures. Photographers do, you know,
1: when you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Looking back, would you have done anything differently if you were able to see the state of photography and the state of the surf industry and where we are today? Would you have made different choices?
0: I've thought back on this many times about how I have, you know, I never put titles of places where I went the magazines did and I never promoted it you know as myself but I look at what the magazines brought on and then the advertising then professional surfing and it blows my mind it's like maybe I shit my own nest
2: (laughs) (laughs) so you're saying you know Malibu would still be a secret spot if you hadn't done what you've done
0: (laughs) not Malibu (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Other places in the world, it's it's like yeah, yeah. we go shoot photos, and what we do is we put bait out, and shit gathers flies.
2: <laughs> what do you spend your day working on these days, mostly? What what do you like to shoot, or what, what have you been commissioned to shoot? Or what have you been putting your attention on?
0: Not much, tell you the truth. I've been scanning. I have an iMacon scanner that I've had for 20 years, and trying to scan my work, selling some prints. You know, getting
2: back to to the question about, you know, the state of photography and the state of the industry, uh, you know, I'm trying to remain positive and not cynical about this art form and this career that we've both invested so much in and that I love so much. But, you know, moving forward, do you have any advice for for kids today that would want to be a photographer?
0: That spooks me. Um, Yeah, I teach at Orange Coast College and it's really hard for me to recommend getting into photography unless you're really obsessed with it. I tell a lot of people that they could probably do better at becoming producers or get into film or something like that. It's just because I think still photography is not being valued that much because there's no print anymore. I mean, magazines are gone, books are going quickly, and it's like become a whole new deal. It's like getting paid for photography is like, buying bitcoin in a sense it just it's it's crazy it's it doesn't make sense to me you know because it it's lost its value you know i remember when you could make 10 grand a day for 10 days in a row doing photography or you could go on a surf trip and you could make 10 or 20 grand through sponsors and other things like that and all of a sudden it's it's disappeared you know I mean, it's still there, but there's always somebody that will do it cheaper, maybe not as good. So it doesn't matter how good you are anymore.
2: So I think that's the problem. It's not just that the field has become that much more crowded, and that you or I or a talented photographer, you know, is is intimidated that they don't have the talent to be able to compete. It's just that the the pie has disappeared. You know, I used to, I liken it almost to like the photo Olympics. It's not just that there's so many more athletes that I'm worried that I can't make it to the Olympics. It's that there's no photo Olympics anymore.
0: Right. You know, I mean, where, where the photos go, they go on the internet. That's about it.
2: And, and they're disposable.
0: Yep. I remember when we were shooting all sorts of stuff for Gatorade and Pepsi, you know, working with Beckham and, you know, some of the top athletes and soccer players in the world. And it was great work and it was fun to do. Now I can make money, but just going out and, shooting, flying around the country, shooting 100 corporate portraits that have to be a certain style and fit into a certain corner. And the only thing that makes it easy is you know how to do it and you can do it well and you can repeat it more than once.
2: Did you have an agent throughout most of your career? Because it, it seems from from an outside perspective, you've been really good at navigating a lot of different fields, you know, surfing, obviously. But I mean, you have a pretty strong commercial background, which uh, there's not a lot of quote unquote surf photographers that really like crossover and were able to do that. Is that a testament to your talent, your tenacity? Did you have somebody in your corner helping you with that?
0: Not initially. I did it all pretty much on my own up until probably 1996, something like that. A group called Gene Gardner and Associates asked me if I wanted to be repped by them. I think they had already had a job that someone was interested in using me. And that sort of started the ball rolling, you know, and a lot of the work I all always picked up on my own. I don't know how it comes. It's sort of osmosis, but I was lucky enough to have people see my work and, you know, hire me and pay me good money.
2: Yeah, no, it's great. You seem like you, you, you were able to navigate that pretty well. I mean, I've been fortunate to have, a career in New York completely outside of surfing until I started that project, but
0: no, you got great work
2: is why. Thank you. Thank you. But at the same time, like, you know, I spent a decade trying to reverse engineer where the money is in the surf realm and I never figured it out.
0: (laughs) Well, there never was any. And that's why I was always doing side gigs, you know, Islands Magazine. I wanted to work with them for a long time. And, you know, I didn't get picked up by them and, until late eighties or something like that, or mid eighties. And ended up working for them for over, you know, 12 years until they were sold and moved to Florida and even worked for them a little there. But, you know, then all of a sudden they started getting the writers to do the photography. But, you know, when I was working with the islands directly, when they were in Santa Barbara, I was able to, you know, meet great writers that worked with national geographic and like guys like Paul Thoreau and, you know, God, it's, just, it's inspiring when you work with creative people that are really good at what they do. So,
2: when when Surfer Magazine finally folded, had its final death nail, like um, what is that? A year and a half, two yep. years ago. Were you were you personally affected by that? Did you still have a connection, either no. you know, financially or emotionally, at that point? Did it? Were you? Had you already kind of been gone for so lo- for so long that it didn't affect you. I mean, because that was that was a really that was a really sad day for a lot of people, a lot of photographers, a lot of people in the surface. I
0: thought it was a sad day for photographers, but I sort of watched them driving the car off the cliff, you know, from my perspective. I was disappointed. I felt that they were trying to be they're trying to follow the trends and they were becoming very wokey in a lot of ways. And people were tired of it. I think people are tired of it now. And the journal exists because it comes out with stuff that's different, you know?
2: And it's, it's beautiful and people respect it and it's, it's worth paying for is the bottom line. It's
0: creative. It's not one-sided or, you know, it doesn't have that narrow perspective that everything else does.
2: Um, Well, we always like to end the podcast by giving our guests an opportunity to kind of pay it forward and, and plug something other than one of their projects that they feel, you know, hasn't really gotten the attention that it deserves, whether it's, a book or an artist or a movie or a cause? Is there, is there something you want to shout out so that listeners can be aware of?
0: Yeah, there's a guy named Charles Adler. He's no relation to Tom, who Tom's a great friend of mine. Wonderful guy. Yes, he's worked with Quicksilver for years. Um, he's a curator of art shows and things like that. And he's done some fantastic stuff for like Surfrider and Ohana Festival and things like that, and putting together amazing photographic and art shows. That uh, God, guy's great. So,
2: does he have anything coming up currently that that we could shout out?
0: I did a couple donations to Surfrider recently, and also to the Ohana Festival. But you know, I had a few shows earlier in the year. I have all sorts of things in the wings, but nothing that's solid yet. You know, working on a book project with Surfers doing a 60 years of Surfer that. It's being done through Rosoli. Again, we we talk about money and things like that. And here's this big book publisher that has basically no money or doesn't want to pay any money for photography. But you know, if you want to be part of the project, then you you got to sort of submit.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I found it's funny. Like even when I when I put my book out, like the only thing less future forward than still photography is a printed book of still photography. So right. it's an uphill battle, but you know, well, we do it because we love it.
0: They, yeah. And what they say about books, it's the world's most expensive calling card. Yeah. And it, it's Steve Pesman put it when he started publishing the, you know, the masters of surf photography and stuff like that. It's an evergreen, you know, it's one of those things that doesn't pay you right away, but it'll pay you down the line.
2: Yeah, well, hopefully that will happen for you because uh, it's a beautiful book. Bravo! Congratulations! It's
0: almost out of print right now. I, I think it's uh, they probably have a few hundred copies left. That's about it.
2: Good. Well, I will. I will cherish my signed copy. And um, when you have some other projects that you want to plug, you're always welcome to back on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking time out.
0: Thank you, Justin. If you're out in California, look me up. Absolutely. You're always welcome. Have a great day.
2: Thanks for listening. And a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Ryan Bucci and Peter Buckingham. Theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan with sound design by Brad Worrell at SoundWag. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.